On this portion of today's morning show, we are going to be talking about what it means to be human and what it means when we live in a world that seems to be bent on dehumanization, at least in many different respects. This is a topic that has been of great interest to my guest, Adam Waits, who is Associate Professor of Management and Organizations and Social Psychologist at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, and uh, the author of a very interesting new book called The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World, published by W.W. Norton and Company. Among other things in Professor Waits's book, he explores what it means to be human, and some of the unique characteristics that set human beings apart, characteristics that we often, in a sense, take for granted or do not fully appreciate. For instance, a human being's capacity uh, to persuade others or the way in which our humanity uh, can lead to very, very deep connections with others. Uh, Even in a world uh, such as we live in now, in which there is so much automation that seems to undermine our connectedness. Uh, That and much more is explored in this book, again titled, The Power of Human. So, Professor Waits, we welcome you to the morning show. I'm really happy to be speaking with you about your really, really interesting book. Briefly, how long has this particular topic, uh, humans, dehumanization, the rise of automation, how long has this been of interest to you? Well, this book is the culmination of basically 15 years of research on the topics of humanization and dehumanization, because those are sort of jargony terms. I'll, I'll say what they mean. Humanization is really just, in, in the simplest way, deep social engagement with another person, where you consider the mind behind the eyes of another person, their wants, their dreams, their thoughts, their uh, desires, and their feelings. And then dehumanization is just the opposite, considering another person without the capacity to feel, to think, to have uh, higher emotions, treating them as no different from an object or a subhuman animal. And so I've been thinking about these things for 15 years and thinking that dehumanization has subtly been on the rise and that we should do something about it. I want to talk in a, a, about a couple of ways in which we see dehumanization play out. One of the things you say is that dehumanization tends to dominate the stereotypes or the biases that we will sometimes form about, uh, formulate about, uh, about other people. When you talk about dehumanization in this context, are you really meaning it literally that, that at the root of stereotypes is a, is a belief that somebody else is not in fact a full-blown human being? Or are you using the term dehumanization in maybe a little more subtle fashion than that? Yeah, well, that's a great question because there's really two forms of of dehumanization. The the subtle form is, is more when we overlook another person's capacity to think, when we simply don't notice uh, that there's a real rational, uh, thoughtful person on the other end of the conversation. And then there's the blatant dehumanization that I think indeed forms a lot of our uh, biases and prejudices toward (coughs) other people. And uh, I think it's also helpful to think about dehumanization not as an on or an off 
switch where you're human or you're, you're not, we see that uh, it works more like a thermostat where we often consider other people, particularly outgroup members, people we're at war at or people who we dislike politically as uh, somewhat less human than ourselves. And the reason why we know this isn't just uh, metaphor or talk is we've done some studies where we literally ask people, we show them images of uh, the the ascent of man, this uh, famous image that shows how humans have evolved you know, from Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, all the way up to uh, Homo sapiens today. And we ask people to place different targets on that scale. You know, we ask them things like, where do you think the average American is on this scale? Where do you think the average uh, Muslim is on this scale? Where do you think the average um, uh, South American person is on this scale? And we actually do see that people will dehumanize certain groups that they uh, uh, dislike using that scale. In other words, placing them lower on that scale of development. In other words, regarding them perhaps still as a human being, but a lesser human being, less evolved, less developed, less accomplished, less gifted, or whatever. How about in our our current political climate where you have, for instance— supporters of our current president uh, calling liberals snowflakes or liberals yeah. uh, talking about Trump voters uh, in, in very yeah. kind of sweeping generalization. Uh, right. Is this a form of dehumanization as you are talking about it in your book? Uh, yes, yes. So I think as we're all aware, political polarization is at the highest point uh, in recent history, perhaps in American history. And uh, this is borne out of dehumanization. So uh, one study has actually shown that Democrats and Republicans will rate each other lower in, in terms of being evolved on the scale that I referred to earlier. In um, other work, uh, people from different sides of the political aisle don't believe that uh, their political opponents experience the same basic human sensations and emotions that they do. And and so you see dehumanization coming out in that way. And in our own work, what we show is something uh, very specific, which is that Democrats and Republicans, if you ask them, why are you in conflict with the other side? Is it out of uh, love for your own party or hatred toward the other party? They'll say it's out of love for my own party. But if you ask them, well, why is the other side engaged in conflict uh, uh, politically? They'll say, well, it's out of hatred for us, not necessarily love. So this denial of love and this emphasis on hate, I think, is another uh, form of dehumanization as well. You also talk at one point in your book about something that probably most of us know at least a little bit about, but I really appreciate the detail with which you share some concerns about how dehumanization uh, often occurs within the military, and not accidentally, but but right. there is a purposeful sort of dehumanization that goes on, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, the use of terminology uh, to describe yeah. one's, one's enemies. Remind us about that and, and what kind of lessons we can draw from that uh, that might be applicable in, in other arenas more directly relevant to the rest of us. 
Yeah. Well, so the good news is that humans have a very difficult time harming other humans, uh, even in the throes of war. Uh, it's not something that people want to do. We're very averse to harming others. Now, this doesn't serve us well if the goal is for uh, conquest. So uh, the military has increasingly taken steps to build uh, subtle forms of dehumanization into its training uh, because it's much easier to harm someone if you don't consider them as, as fully human. That's, that's the disturbing part. So uh, in talking to some military folks, and, and including a very accomplished Green Beret, uh, he talked about how, you know, this even functions in the language that you use to describe the person you're at war with. You don't call them, um, you know, like by human terms, you call them the target area or the, the terms like uh, mowing the grass. This is someone who is deployed to Af uh, Afghanistan and said this term was used to talk about um, uh, essentially killing uh, younger um, uh, Afghanis uh, in a way that they wouldn't grow into full-blown terrorists or, or what have you. So you can see this language gets disturbing very quickly, um, but its function is to make people feel like they're not, in fact, harming another human being. So that is uh, the tension there. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that in that same chapter, uh, you go on to explore some of the ways in which actually humanization is is actually far more valuable uh, in terms of, a, of an effective tactic in much of what the military does. And you draw on some real life examples, um, which right. completes the picture. For those of you just joining us, I'm I'm speaking with. Um, uh, Dr. Adam Waits, Associate Professor of Management in Organizations and Social Psychologist at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management and the author of a book called The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World. I think what lots of people are talking about in terms of your book uh, are the chapters in which you explore what it means to be human in an increasingly automated world. And, uh, right. and, and, and much of what you talk about in terms of, of humanity, dehumanization, humanization really comes into play in some, some fascinating real-world examples. I wonder if you could share with our listeners a really interesting little story you share that I think a lot of our listeners can relate to, which relates uh, to uh, a trip that you made from Chicago to Tel Aviv for a conference yeah. and the experience that yeah. you had uh, in, I don't remember if it was the Chicago airport or the Tel Aviv airport, but uh, it really speaks a lot to our current situation. Yeah. So this was something that, that struck me uh, a few years ago when I had to travel to, to a conference uh, in Tel Aviv from Chicago. And uh, from the moment I left my house to, I had to fly through Newark airport. Um, and there are all these different steps along the way. I realized from Chicago to Tel Aviv, I virtually did not interact with a single human being. So I called an Uber car from my phone. I didn't speak with the driver. I uh, went through some uh, <clears throat> express line for security. I uh, had nobody sitting next to me on my plane from Chicago to Newark. 
I needed, uh, I had forgotten my headphones and bought headphones from a vending machine at Newark Airport. I wanted food, and uh, at Newark Airport, you can order food from an iPad, which I did. Um, still had no, from Newark to Tel Aviv, had no one sitting next to me. And I, I made it from Chicago to Tel Aviv and felt like this is one of the best travel experiences ever. I, a, a no hassle, no fuss, uh, and no humans. And then I started to reflect on that, you know, given all the conveniences we have of iPads and Uber and vending machines and this uh, enhanced technology all around us. And I, I started to think about, you know, what is lost in a world where uh, we've basically given up interactions with humans to have more convenience and efficiency. And, and I think there, is, uh, there are some things that are lost in our increasingly automated world. Hmm. One, of the, uh, one of the points that you make in this section is that uh, this is hitting us hard, this, this movement towards more and more automation in the work- workplace. It's hitting us hard because people identify so deeply with their work. Many of us yes. root our sen- sense of, of identity uh, deeply in what we do and how we do it. And when we find jobs vanishing or jobs being transformed, uh, it, it, it can be really, really devastating. And one of your bits of advice is we need to try to, first of all, work less and to base less of our identity on our jobs. I mean, it, it, it needs to have a different right. place in our life. Exactly. And I, I think this is somewhat of a cultural belief. I, I know that this is a, a strong belief in the United States, that there's this inherent dignity to work. Uh, there's this in, inherent purpose that we get from work. Uh, I, I tell the story about how uh, this is a, perhaps an apocryphal story, but uh, a non-Native uh, English speaker comes to the United States, and he thought the word busy meant good, because every time he asked someone, how are you doing, they said, busy. And so uh, we have this idea that uh, the busyness of our, our work is an inherently good thing, uh, and our identity is so much tied to our work. But if we step back for a moment, particularly facing the specter of automation, where some of our jobs might not exist in a few years, uh, that idea strikes me as, as kind of funny, uh, that we derive so much purpose from our work when we could be doing all sorts of other things. And so uh, part of this is to say, how do we deal with automation, making us feel uh, potentially replaceable and potentially less human? Well, we should take uh, joy in the fact that uh, humans can do other things outside of work. We can engage in leisure. We can do uh, all sorts of things um, separate from our worker identity. And I think that's the attitude that I hope we can move toward. Right. You also talk about how uh, we can think about human-machine partnerships. In fact, you devote an entire chapter to that and explore some of the different ways in which these partnerships might actually work really, really well. Uh, right. d- d- describe to your listeners just the, the, the sense in which this can, this, th- this can happen in, in, in several different ways. Yeah. 
Well, probably my my favorite example, even though it's not the most uh, uh, sexy example, is is in from cybersecurity. And so the basic idea is one way I think humans and machines can work together is that machines are very good at crunching a lot of data and doing the same thing over and over and over again. What humans are doing, uh, good at doing, uh, as opposed to robots, is spotting deviations from a pattern, spotting outliers, spotting abnormal information. So these very smart folks at MIT built a system to analyze a bunch of data, uh, online material, emails, and to identify, uh, <clears throat> are there any threats to cybersecurity? Are there any viruses or attacks? And the system you know, crunches tons and tons of information. Uh, this would be too much for a human to take in, or it would take a human a very long time. And when the machine works on its own, it's pretty good at identifying cyber attacks, but it ends up identifying a lot of false positives, a lot of things that it thought were cyber attacks but are really mundane. Um, so what the uh, researchers did is they said, I think we can improve on this. We're going to have the machine crunch millions and millions of bits of data, and then occasionally we're going to give a sample of its findings to cybersecurity human experts. The human experts then say, from that sample, uh, you got a few right here, you got a few wrong here, feed that info back to the machine, and then the human and machine working together uh, are virtually perfectly accurate hmm. in identifying cyber threats. So I think, again, even though it's kind of an arcane example, it's a perfect example of how humans and machines working together are often uh, better than either working alone. Right. I, I think there's some hope, hope for the future there. I also want you to say a quick word about a really intriguing notion you bring up in this chapter about that robots could potentially reduce the emotional burdens that humans face right. on the job. I think that's very right. counterintuitive. It's kind of the last thing we would expect a robot to be capable of doing. How do you see that happening? Right. So uh, the examples I, I give are at the forefront of customer service. And typically, if you just say the word customer service to people, uh, you know, may, you don't get a positive response. People don't like calling customer service. Customer service reps are often very burdened. Uh, you're dealing with frustrated people. And my personal experience of calling customer service, say, for my cable company or for an airline, uh, is really frustrating because I often need an immediate solution, and I have to go through all these steps online of verifying who I am, talking to a robot, and those systems don't work very well. But newer systems, uh, some systems employed by banks or financial service firms, are using advanced biometric technology that, say, can identify you just from your voice. So if I'm a bank, uh, or if I'm a bank customer and I need to have a secure uh, conversation over the phone, uh, I can call this bank and just start talking. And the machine identifies me. It can perfectly route me to where I need to go. And then by the time I get to the customer service rep, I'm less frustrated and I'm taking out less of my frustration on them so they can help me with a more targeted issue. Hmm. So that's one way that advanced 
you know, if you want to call it robots or robotic systems, can reduce emotional burdens on right. the job. Adam Waits explores other avenues and arenas in which automation is becoming more and more a part of our lives. For instance, when it comes to self-driving cars, he talks about a study in which he engaged trying to determine how much people would welcome the notion of self-driving cars. And much has to do with how self-driving cars are put together and what level of control uh, the human being in the car can retain. He also talks in his book about how when it comes to automation and the creation of robots, a lot has to do with whether or not those robots begin to resemble us, particularly in appearance. And there is a point at which uh, we do not welcome automation to that level because it becomes a more threatening thing. And that's why the key to automation being welcomed into our lives is when automation does not seem to be aping the human being. For instance, uh, something like a smart speaker uh, in no way resembles a person. And so most people do not have any difficulty with uh, allowing that kind of automation into their lives. It's a phenomenon known as the valley of eeriness, in which we welcome the increased sophistication of automation to a point until that automation begins to imitate uh, human beings. And at that point, it becomes too human for our comfort, and we regard it as eerie and creepy and threatening and then want to reject it from our lives. He explores this and many, many other uh, factors of automation in his fascinating book, and he offers this comforting word at one point. Uh, Adam Waits writes, humans will likely stave off automation for longer than predictive models suggest. Machines almost always will be catching up with and learning from humans rather than the other way around. That is, machines need humans. The book, once again, is The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity Can Help Us Create a Better World, it's published by W.W. W. Norton & Company and the author, Dr. Adam Waits. I'm Gregory Berg.